What's the deal? Good afternoon and welcome to our special edition of My Brother's Keeper Wave Gang Podcast. I'm back at it again with a little something for the kids. Tonight's conversation will be on the former President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative in Long Beach in connection with diversion programs. So turn your audio up, pull up a chair with a young man of color because his fireside chat is hot. So listen up. I'm talking to you, young parents of our young men of color, community organizers, educators, future leaders, griots. I need you to join in the conversation. President Obama's 2014 local action plan, My Brother's Keeper, is an initiative to make sure all youth, including our young brothers of color, that means African-American, Latino, Native American, Pacific Islander, our Asian brothers, Make sure our young men of color are well-equipped to keep up with their peers, excel in school, and make sure they're safe from the violence that may be surrounding them in their neighborhoods. The My Brother's Keeper Initiative, or MBK for short, will gather our neighbors to volunteer to step up and mentor our future leaders and equip them with what they need to be successful in the workforce. On behalf of Wave Gang, I'd like to introduce Program Coordinator for Central Cha, Mr. Robert Castillo. Uh, my name is Robert Castillo. I am a program coordinator with Centro Cha. We are a community-based program uh, located here in, in the city of Long Beach. So Long Beach is one of approximately 200 cities across the country that joined in the MBK initiative. In 2015, January 2015, the Long Beach Co Council hopped on to join the initiative and accept the challenge. How has Central Child been involved in helping out some of the youth here in Long Beach. So I specifically work with a, a reentry grant, and uh, through that reentry grant, we serve uh, men of color, which would be Hispanic uh, and then also uh, African American. Uh, we accept walk-ins, we accept referrals. Yeah, so they could absolutely join at will. If somebody heard about our program and they told somebody word of mouth they absolutely could come. I work specifically in the workforce department of Central Cha, and we uh, primarily, everything we do is based on the employment model. And so what that basically means is is that we believe helping people to become employment ready and getting them ready to, to, to enter into the workforce, that that would in turn keep them off of the streets, uh, keep them away from crime, keep them out of jails, so also we are joined by Ms. Don, from a community union organizer and co-founder of the Long Beach chapter of Black Lives Matter. Thank you for reaching out and having me join you guys today. Absolutely, welcome. Thank you, yep, uh, happy, to, happy to do so. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I am a mom of two black boys, uh, really three, including my stepson. And my stepson's 20, shoot, 25. My my oldest son is 20, he'll be 24 this year, he's 23. And my youngest son is 12. And they all came through Long Beach Unified. They're all born here in Long Beach. I'm from here in Long Beach, grew up here in Long Beach. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, a little bit of a success story. That's, that Long Beach has birthed and 
um, been able to have some life experiences that has enabled me to be moved and empowered to organize our community. Um, so community organizing, worker organizing is a, um, a very important uh, skill set and necessity that we all have to be doing in order to uh, achieve um, and winning, uh, addressing and winning over the conditions that are impact us all as folks of Long Beach. But yeah, I hadn't, you know, I've heard of uh, my brother's keeper, obviously. Um, I know of a few people who have uh, taken advantage of some of the funding around the program, different organizations, different individuals. Um, as a mom of two black boys and as an organizer and activist, um, I haven't heard a lot personally, haven't heard a lot about it or seen it um, as visibly as I've seen other programs and funding sources. And my kids play sports, right, all through, you know, high school and middle school, um, football in the summer programs, um, baseball during school and, and travel all throughout the city. And so when you ask me about this program in particular, um, it's one that I think that if there, you know, has been some granting of access throughout the city, that uh, it it might need to be broadened, right? Um, so no no shade on like any of our folks and organizations who are taking advantage of that work. We all should be. But um, but yeah. So you you asked how I, what all I knew about it. It's limited. There's a reason why specifically he put young men of color because sometimes young men of color, you know, kind of fall behind and are <clears throat> are not included. So I went to the Obama White House ar archives website, the fact sheet, and it mentioned that boys of color are often fall into poverty. They live with a single parent. It says roughly two thirds of black and one third of Hispanic children live with only one parent and that a risk of a father's absence increases the risk of a child dropping out. And it says that dropout rates are pretty high within the African-American and Latino community as well. It's good to see something that is not just young black men or young men of color are included, it's, it's a focus on them. So I have yeah. a question. As, yeah. a, as a mother of young men of color, and you're learning about this, my brother's keeper, who would be some of the, and I'm asking this to you, you and your field too, who would be the ideal candidate for somebody to be a mentor to your sons? My oldest son is mixed with Guatemalan and Puerto Rican. Um, my youngest son is black. And they have uh, mentors around them who come from all walks of life. Um, some of my, you know, some of my best comrades are non-black. But for my children, I, you know, all they knew as president was Barack Obama for my 12-year-old. Right. And then seeing now a non-black president for him at 12 years old. Right. Like um, it's like what's happening. Right. Um, so that that visual for him is, is a thing. But to get to your point, um, a mentor for my son is someone who can speak to his experiences, 
who um, can who can say that they've um, walked a similar life to one that my son sees sees in his in his own life, but can also take him from those similarities to uh, a very different place of exploration. I would have to agree with her. Getting back to your question on on mentors, a little bit about my background. Uh, I come from a highly dysfunctional family. They're still dysfunctional to this day. Mm -hmm. Um, um, For some reason, I made it out. I I was actually at one point the black sheep of the family, and today I'm like the first person in my family that has gone to college and graduated and earned a degree. Um, But a little bit about my background, I went through the whole juvenile system. Uh, all the ju- juvenile facilities. I ended up in uh, juvenile camp for nine months, uh, and then later on I was sentenced to six years, and I did state time in the California Youth Authority. Um, uh, at age 20, when I paroled, I was introduced to um, hardcore drugs. I started using heroin. Um, so I know about that lifestyle. I came out of that lifestyle. Um, so even though I have a education because I, um, I'm actually double mastered. Um, uh, and so, but uh, the paper, I guess, looks good when I'm <laughs> in meetings or whatever. With, uh, but, but in working with, my, with the participants in our program, wh- why I think I'm successful is because um, I know what, what it's like to struggle. And today I'm earning a pretty good wage. Recently I heard in the news, like, middle class was from 40000 a year to 60000 or something like that, and I'm kind of making a little bit above that. So I'm, sometimes I'm like, hey, guy, you're doing pretty good these days because I'm not really struggling anymore. Yeah. But I know what it's like to struggle. And when I go visit my parents, uh, as much as I love them, I'm sometimes like, wow, things are still the same around here. Mm. Uh, but I love my family. Um, but... Yeah, you know, so I, uh, um, I'm able to be real with, um, you know, there's a genuine concern with the people that I work with. And, 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 and not that I'm the person, but I'm just saying, so when it comes to mentors, I think like understanding each other, um, having that relevance culturally, speaking that language, mm-hmm. and I don't mean, I don't mean the other language other than English. I'm just saying that yeah. when, you, you know, yeah. I think that's, that's, that's important. In your personal experience, how would you keep the youth of color out of the criminal justice system? Um, I think that it's important for, um, as they were mentioning earlier, like mentors and um, educators um, to to really uh, make people aware of um, education. And so... When I was growing up, um, well, first of all, in in in, um, in the Hispanic culture, um, education isn't one of our values. That might be slowly changing, but it's not one of our values. We really we value work, and so uh, traditionally, a lot of families would rather that you go to work instead of going to college. However, we're living in a time now where you either have to have a certificate showing that you 
you know, that you have an academic, like a, that you have a vocational training, or you need an, or you need a degree, and uh, that's 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 the world that we're living in now. It's very competitive, and so I think that we need to make people aware of that, that um, they're going to need either one of those things. Um, when I was attending college, I remember one of my professors um, broke down like the poverty line, and um, I remember that he mentioned one of the keys to getting out of poverty. So poverty, what, I, what I've come to learn means um, lack of earning ability. So the reason why people stay below the poverty line is because they, they either have um, uh, low education and no work skills. And so um, one of the keys to making out of poverty or to, or to get earning ability is to either earn a certificate that shows that you have a vocational skill or to gain an education. So I think we need to make uh, individuals aware of that, especially the Africa, African-American people and, and Hispanic people. Uh, we need to make, that, make them aware of that. When I was attending, when I was doing my master's degree, um, literally I remember that... Um, so they say the higher you go, the less you see Hispanic people, especially doing like a graduate degree. I could remember that when I was in in class, um, I, I'm thinking about this one particular class. It was mostly white people. Uh, there was a few Asian. I think they were more Korean, maybe a Japanese. I think the, a couple Korean, and and then there was me, Hispanic, and one black person. And me and the me and the um, black person kind of gravitated towards each other, and we became friends. That's how we became friends because we were like the only minority, so to speak, in that class. And um, and so I think that um, yeah, we just need to make make uh, uh, young people of color more aware of that they need to gain an education or work skill, and that's how uh, it keeps them out of incarceration, and, and, and it's the key to getting out of poverty. So you have a question for Mr. Castillo about uh, in the undocumented or mm -hmm. immigrants. You have a personal story with your brother, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the topic of incarceration and diversion is really important to me because, um, you know, I have two older brothers, um, and one younger brother, so all brothers, um, and we're all undocumented, our entire family's undocumented, and so you can imagine um, just the, the environment um, we grew up in in the United States. Um, hearing uh, stories on the news about how immigrants are criminals, but at the same time um, having to compensate because at the same time, you know, this profile of young immigrants is seen as sometimes the the exception there's there's also the stereotype of the dreamer who is the opposite of a criminal and i think mm -hmm. that these two um these two stereotypes kind of complement they they play on each other um and how we imagine immigrants um in in the case of my brother um f uh when he was around my age in his young 20s he um because of the opportunities we were offered due to our immigration status not being able to work um, did end up falling through the cracks 
um, having to like you know hustle on the street um, and eventually was arrested for several different charges um, some were misdemeanors some were harsher um, and uh, harsher drug convictions but were later dropped um, at the end of the day um, after he served his time those charges um, stayed with him and, and flagged him for ICE to detain him. And so when I think about diversion programs, I think about the case of my brother, who, if things have gone differently, might have had an easier path to where he is today. And now he's a business owner, so he's found his own path. But I think, it, you know, again, he, he is just one exception to what happens to a lot of undocumented immigrants who get caught in the criminal justice system. So I just wanted to ask, um, uh, about your work at Central Cha, um, is the youth diversion program available to undocumented immigrants? Uh, for example, do you have to be a citizen to qualify for the workforce training? Um, do you see people's eligibility impacted by their history of, uh, of their immigration status? So yes and no. Um, that kind of, that's contingent on the grants that we receive uh, because they come with criteria. So for example, I, I I'm the program coordinator over a grant uh, named WAGES. Uh, WAGES is an acronym for Work and Gain uh, Employment Educational Skills. And with that one, that it allows us to serve uh, individuals who are undocumented. But then there's other grants that will not allow us to serve uh, people that are undocumented. So that's why I said yes and no. It just kind of depends on the grant. And so what we've tried to do, what, what, what Central Cha has tried to do is, uh, apart from our grants, so we also do fundraising. Uh, through our fundraising, and, I, and I, I'm not, I don't really know the amount of dollars that are, are raised or that are available, but sometimes if an individual doesn't uh, meet the criteria, uh, but we see that there's a need and we still, because we want to, we still want to meet the needs of our community, um, then we'll try to use our own dollars to help that individual out, and we do that as well. And then recently what we've started to do is we've implemented into our program what we call the social enterprise model, and so we we began a clothing line, and what we're it's still kind of evolving, so what we're going to do is we'll have individuals come in uh, they'll do like a silk screen printing training, and then once they complete that, then we'll allow them to work. So we're hoping that our social enterprise will evolve into like a retail, and then they'll be able to work at our at our store there at Central Cha. Uh, they'll gain work experience, and so at the end they'll have they'll have uh, they'll have attained a certificate. Uh, they'll have work experience that they could put on their uh, resumes and then move on to the job world. Mm -hmm. So back to My Brother's Keeper. The My Brother's Keeper local action plan uh, works around six milestones, um, one of them being the to for the youth to be able to complete post-secondary education and training to be able to enter the workforce. And that's something that Central Cha Long Beach has been involved with. Wow, I didn't even know that story about about your family, uh, Benjamin. Where, where's your family from? Uh, they're from Brunei. Brunei, right. Yeah, that's where I was born. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the area you grew up in and, and just Long how Beach? you... 
in Brunei and like how you like what it was like for them to come out here and be able to you said he's a business owner now right mm-hmm. wow can you tell me a little bit about that um so I actually I didn't spend too much time in Brunei I was actually two years old when I immigrated um, to the United States with my family. Um, but Brunei has actually been in the news a lot recently because that's a small Muslim country in Southeast Asia. And so there's some changes happening in their penal code where you know the death penalty has been introduced for a variety of like, moral crimes. Um, so that's the country that my family moved from. Um, I think one thing that is really unique about my family's immigration story is that my three brothers and I came with our mother, and so we grew up with a single family. Um, our dad stayed behind in Brunei because they had separated. And so that definitely made it more difficult for us to adjust in the United States. Um, and after you know, our um, original plan with getting our papers failed, um, it, 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 our immigration status continued to be a barrier for um, our education, um, my mom's ability to work, and just the way that our family was structured and we were able to support each other. Um, in the case of my brother, when he was detained, it was very hard for my family. Um, I was 16 years old, so I was still in high school. Um, you know, having to s- divide time at home, but also going to the detention center on the weekend, which was in Irvine. Um, you know, looking back for me, that was a very, you know, I would say that was a very traumatic experience, not just for me, but for my family as well. Um, and it definitely affected, um, it, 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 it just, it affected the way that we navigated through the system and were able to support our brother. And at that time, my family wasn't open about her status, so we weren't able to reach out to a network and um, even know that there was legal support in our community and this was before DACA so oh, all right. it, was, it was much harder to talk about this. Yeah, it was kind of like a danger to be able to bring it up and you you didn't know who you can trust. One thing I one thing I did want to bring up because for me that experience mm-hmm. was what it's what opened my eyes to just how this whole system worked um, and for me I I, I'm, I think about how there's so many different alternatives to detention. Like if my brother was able to go through to Central Cha, he might have been able to find a, uh, an alternative for his his income. Um, or if we were granted an easier ability to be citizens, uh, we might not have been in that situation in the first place. So I kind of wanted to see what folks in the room thought were like other alternatives to incarceration and detention. Uh, for folks who um, do violate the law or um, or act violently, what, what can we change to to change the path? I am a program coordinator and I and I have to do a lot of the reporting. I'm very familiar with the measurements, the statistics, our outcomes, and I know that the employment model works. And we've seen, uh, for example, in our last, last contract, uh, we had to do 104 enrollments. And in through our employment model, we've seen of the 104 enroll, enrollees, we've seen uh, close to 90 of them gain 
employment. We call it employment attainment. And then we also track, like we, 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 we track them for six months to a year. And so uh, we've seen close to 70 of our enrollees also gain what we call retention, meaning that they've kept the job for more than 90 days. And those things are, are we track that and we collect that data. Usually the, the proof is that they provide a pay stub where we could take a copy of it and that's proof that they're that they're employed and that they're keeping that employment. And so the majority, a great percentage of, of the people that we enrolled are, have been successful as far as getting the job and keeping the job. And and in turn, we've seen them, we've seen them get off probation. Uh, we've seen some people get back into school or, or complete their high school diploma. Or we've seen some people enroll into co- like uh, community college. Um, We've seen people get off parole, probation. Um, just recently, um, just the other day, we had a young man that discharged from probation. We had a guy that was a high-caliber parolee that we helped. I forget what level or how that works as far as parole conditions, um, but he was pretty high-caliber. And we've seen him uh, complete all of, of our activities and trainings at our program. He gained employment and um, his pro- parole, I think, wanted to see what was going on there and, and, and uh, was this for reals and came and visited our site, did a site visit, was introduced to our staff, was toured around, uh, was orientated as to what it is we do there and uh, just was convinced that, that something genuinely is taking place in this in this uh, parolee's life. And so we saw that parolee eventually discharge from parole. And um, so there's many success stories like that. Definitely. That's, that's good to hear how, you know, some youth were given a second chance or given the opportunity to participate in these programs. And it, it that just goes to show that this actually works. These programs work like the right mentorship works. And that's another part of, that's a big part of what My Brother's Keeper is. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Wave Yang edition of the My Brother's Keeper podcast. Continue these conversations in your communities and continue to follow our coverage through voicewaves.org.